because of the uh, recent Supreme Court decisions, we've had a lot of discussion lately about sin and how the church should respond to sin and talk about sin, and especially the, the sin that involves homosexual acts. I mean, that's been sort of a, a big topic on lots of different forums, and some of them are great, and some of them are not really that productive for constructive conversation. A lot of this has been done on Facebook, and it's been heated on both sides, and there's name-calling and all this stuff, but we're caught up in that. The thing is, sometimes when we have one sin that's in the news, getting the publicity that people feel very passionate about one way or another, we get caught up in that one thing, and we talk about one sin, and we forget all the others. All the ones that we might be struggling with, all the things that God has said are wrong. And yet, Scripture is pretty clear about this. We could turn to Romans chapter 1, and this is one of the places we often turn to to talk about homosexuality. And we read in Romans 1 verse 27, In the same way the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And we want to say, okay, isn't that pretty clear? And it is. And the church needs to speak out about what is sinful and what is not and be upfront about what Scripture has to say about sin and to do it in a really loving way and an honest way. But here's the thing. Sometimes we read Romans chapter 1, verse 27, and we forget to read verse 28. Paul goes on. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God... So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what they ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. When we read that, that gets a little personal, doesn't it? It's easy to talk about the sins that somebody else might commit or sins that we put in a category, that's the really bad stuff. But what Paul does here is he mixes it all together. He puts murderers right in the same list with people who don't obey their parents and people who have some greed or are dealing with gossip or slander. And there's some stuff in there that some of us really struggle with and we're not so glad that Paul has lumped us in with some people that we think have done really bad stuff. You see, what Paul is reminding us here is that sin is sin. And all of it displeases God. All of it is wrong. All of it puts us in the wrong side of a relationship with God. And the question is how we handle that. What do we do with the fact that we know we are sinners? It's easy for us, you know, when we're talking about sin, to, you know, when other people do things, that's sin. But the stuff that I do, well, that's, uh, that's a mistake. That's an error in judgment. What other people do is sin, but what I do, well, see, it doesn't seem as bad when we name it something else, when we call it something else. But the truth is, 
it's still the same. So what do we do with that? Today we continue in the series that we're calling Praying with Greatness. Last week I know Zach continued in the series and I keep hearing that he did a great job and I knew that he'd worked really hard on that sermon so I was really proud that, that he did so well and I'm thankful that we've got him on staff and he can just carry through when I'm, not, when I'm out of town or just not able to be here. So that's a blessing and today we jump right in where he left off. We're in Ezra, which is probably a place you may not have been lately. Ezra is somebody that we don't often think of, but if we listed the top ten people in the Old Testament, he wouldn't make our list. But for people in Jesus' time, Ezra was often thought of as number two compared to Moses. Moses gave the law, and Ezra brought the people back to the law. So why is he so important? He's, he's called a priest in this book, but he really operates more like a scribe or a teacher, teaching the people what the law said. And he operated in a pivotal time for Israel. They've been taken into slavery and in exile in Babylonia because the Babylonians came in and conquered them. So most of the people are taken away. But Ezra lives in a time when things are changing because the Persians rise up and become more powerful than Babylon. And they take over, but their policies are different. They don't see that much value in keeping people away from their homeland, sort of in exile and having to take care of them. And so Cyrus, one of the great kings of the Persians, begins to prepare to send people back to their homelands. And that included the Israelites. And so they return with the blessing and even the support of the Persians. And Ezra is one of those leaders that takes the people from Persia, which we call Iran today, back to the province of Palestine, to Israel. Now he's there about five months. And he's really just taking the law in the Old Testament and he's reading that for the people so that they can hear it. Because here's their chance to rebuild their culture, to rebuild their nation, to rebuild their worship. And so he lays out God's plan for them. And this is why he's considered one of the great leaders, because he's reminding them of what the law said. But in the middle of that, about five months into this process, the people come to Ezra and they confess a sin. They've only been there five months and they're already sort of messing things up. And they come to Ezra and they say, people among us have begun to marry into the nations that surround us. Now that could have easily happened because all the people of Israel are gone, everyone comes in. There's land for free, nobody's there, you can farm it, you can have it. And so the people come back in, and there are those people. And immediately they begin to intermarry with them, and we say, okay, what's the big deal? So they married somebody a little different from them. Here was the big deal in the Old Testament. God had said, don't do this, and there was a reason. Because God knew when they began to get attached to those other people, they would also begin to get attached to their gods. And God said, that is going to be the reason you're destroyed. Because you're going to begin to, to follow these other gods. You're going to worship them, and you're going to take a little bit of their worship and a little bit of my worship and roll it together and whatever you like and, and try to make all these gods happy. And you're going to lose your faith in me. And that's exactly what happened. They began to fall away from God and worship these foreign gods because of their entanglements with those other nations. And that was one of the reasons they were taken into exile to begin with. That was God's judgment. 
And now they've come back and begun the same thing. And here's Ezra's response to that. We find it in Ezra chapter 9, verse 3. When I heard this, Ezra speaking, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. This man is upset over what's happened. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And, as I, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. And then we're told that they come to that evening sacrifice. And in the midst of that, Ezra raises up his hands and he begins to pray to God. This is one of those great prayers that we find in the Old Testament. And it's really a prayer of confession. So listen to what Ezra says. I'm going to walk us through this. He says in verse 6, I am too ashamed, too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. In other words, we've been sinners. This is nothing new. We've done wrong, and every time we've done wrong, it's ended up causing our destruction. And that's why people are in exile today. Okay? So he's reflecting on the whole history of Israel from the beginning until that day. They keep messing up. Verse 8. But now... For a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he's given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. <clears throat> God has given them a second chance. Yeah, they blew it, and they were taken into exile as a punishment for that. But God has now allowed some to return. This is the moment of God's grace. God has allowed something to happen so that they can rebuild everything, including the temple, so that they can have proper worship of God. But verse 10, now our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave us through your servants and prophets when you said, and he's going to lay out exactly what the law told the people to do. Okay, so he's quoting the Old Testament law. The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its people, by their detestable practices, things like child sacrifice. So their worship involved sacrificing their own children. Their worship involved prostitution before the gods, the, the, uh, the idols that they worshiped. So that's the kind of thing that is detestable to God. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. God told us not to get involved with these people because they would only lead us away from him. It was clear. So Ezra is saying, this is our sin, and this is where God said, don't do it. Pretty clear. Verse 13 
What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, and yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. You've allowed us to continue. What we deserve was destruction, but you're giving us a chance at life. Verse 14, shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? What we deserve now is destruction, complete destruction, because you gave us a second chance, and what have we done? We've blown it. We've done the same thing we did in the beginning. And then the last verse, Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt. That's the culmination of the prayer. Here we are before you in our guilt. But because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. So Ezra ends the prayer there. I mean, that's where the amen is. God, we're guilty, and we don't even deserve the opportunity to pray. But God listened. I mean, we're not really given even Ezra saying, God, we want forgiveness. We're asking for grace. He can't even bring himself to do that. All Ezra can do is come to God and stand before the people and with the people and as their priest confess their sin. And he's not even guilty of this. Yet, it's all we and our sin. Ezra is taking ownership of this people, standing before God, confessing this sin. And I think there's the lesson for us. It's hard to do, but confession precedes forgiveness. Confession precedes forgiveness. Now, what do I mean by that? It's easy to skip this part, right? It's easy to go to God and say, uh, God, you know, I probably did something wrong this week, and forgive that, and then move on and ask God for all the stuff that we need Him to do, provide for our families, take care of our problems, solve our conflicts, deal with our money situation, and, and we move on and don't even think about any of that sin. But what did Ezra do? He named the sin. He says, God, listen, this is what we've done. This is it right here. In fact, this is where you told us we shouldn't do it, and we did it anyway. Because he recognized that to really find forgiveness, we've got to confess what we did wrong. Confession precedes forgiveness. It's not fun. It's not easy. It's not pleasant. We don't want to do it. We would rather avoid confessing what we've done, and yet it is vital to our relationship with God. If we want to pray with greatness, confession has to be part of those prayers. Now, why is it so important? I think it helps us in a couple ways. First of all, it helps us find real forgiveness. You know, if we go to God with that general sort of, yeah, God, I've done something wrong kind of prayer, forgive me of all my sins, we haven't talked to God about what we did wrong. And how can we find any true forgiveness if all of our, our plea for forgiveness, our request for forgiveness, is so general, we're not identifying anything? Until we actually go to God and say, okay, this is what I did. Until we name it, how can we experience true 
forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is not easy. It's costly. It's difficult, whether it's with another person or whether it's with God. And part of the difficulty is going to God and say, this, this is it. This is what I did. This is who I am, and I don't like it. Then we find real forgiveness because that sin, that named sin that may have been haunting us for a long time, finally is forgiven. Now, the second way that I think confession helps us is that it allows for change. You see, when we go to God and name our sin, when we put it out there, we're being honest with ourselves and we're being honest with God, maybe for the first time. And so it lays our lives open for God to do something with. As long as we say, hey, God, forgive my sins, we're not acknowledging that anything's really wrong. It's sort of like, if I ever did anything wrong, God, then take care of it. But when we say, God, this is me, this is the stuff about me that I don't like, then we're opening our lives up enough for God to do something to change all that. As long as it's general, it's not going to happen. But when we begin to own up to the sin that's there, God can begin to transform us, to make us into the people that he wants us to be, the people that we could be, the ways that we could be changed so that we could serve God in a, a new and fresh way. It's God's Spirit at work in our lives. It's this naming sin, showing our honesty with ourselves and God that allows real forgiveness and real change in our lives. Now, some of you have done this. Maybe some of you even today, you woke up and there was something on your heart and you knew it was something you've done that was just wrong. And you took it to God and, and you were honest with God. But I think a lot of people in the room, for those of us who haven't been that honest with God, we need to be. We need to take an opportunity to open up our lives enough that we name our sin and we put it before God and we ask for forgiveness and we allow him to begin to change us. Now, it's no fun because we have to confront things about ourselves that we don't like. We have to face the fact that we've done stuff that we knew was wrong. We knew should not happen, and yet we did it anyway. So today, I want us to take a few minutes and confront all that, to really confess to God. And the way we're going to do it is we've got a video that's been prepared, and it contains the words, um, some of the words, of Psalm 51, okay? Psalm 51 is, is David's response to his own sin. In some ways, the words are similar to, to how Ezra responds. Now, David is, is, is approached by the prophet Nathan, and Nathan says, listen, David, this is the short story, you committed adultery with this woman Bathsheba. She's married. Got a husband named Uriah. And you committed adultery with her, and to try to cover that adultery up, you had her husband, Uriah, killed in battle. So you're an adulterer, you're a murderer, and you're a liar. Greatest king of Israel. 
had to deal with all that. And one of the ways he dealt with it is the words that we find in Psalm 51, which is a psalm of confession. Now, you'll notice as we play through this video that there's going to be some passages from Psalm 51. Read the whole thing because it's powerful. But these are just some passages that just sort of show the way that David is talking to God. But there's also some blank space there. And so I'd like for us to alternate hearing David talking to God about his sin and and calling it really what it is, naming that sin, but also opening his life up in a way that God could offer grace and God could offer change. So as you listen to this and read this, hear what David has to say, but use those blank places to open your life up with God, to confess, to name your sin, and ask God to change. Let's watch the video. 